If you have your Bible this morning, or a Bible, I invite you to um, open your Bible to Hebrews chapter 11. We are moving slowly through Hebrews 11. I was talking to somebody this week, it was Elizabeth, we were talking, and um, I told her that, I think it was you that we were talking about how long we've been in Hebrews compared to, that wasn't you? It was, oh, yeah, it was a nice person, whoever it was. Uh, but I was I was telling them that uh, at our previous church when I preached through Hebrews, it was about five years of time going through Hebrews. And was it you, Elizabeth? Yeah, everything I say, you just hang on those words and remember them forever. Um, and actually, we'll probably be finishing up Hebrews next March is my guess. And uh, so that'll be about a year and a half or so that will have been in Hebrews. So we're moving a lot faster, but it's if you feel like we're bogging down in Hebrews 11, we're really not. We're, we're moving rather quickly through it. So uh, hopefully this has been an encouragement to you as we've gone through it. Hebrews 11, we're just going to read um, a few verses this morning. We're going to start in <clears throat> um, verse 20, and we're going to read down through verse 22. We're going to talk about three people this morning, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. That's who the writer mentions in these three verses. So Hebrews 11 and verse 20, by faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. Whoever is wise, let him attend to these things. Let us consider the steadfast love of the Lord. Over the last few weeks, we have been learning about the faith of Abraham. And just to keep it fresh in your mind, faith means belief. Good. I knew that you'd all remember that just like that. Faith means belief. Again, it's not trust. It's not a force. It's, it's belief. Who, what we really believe, that will play itself out in where we place our trust and how we live. We talked about that in, in specific last week. But we, we've been learning about the faith of Abraham. He actually occupies an extended portion of Hebrews 11 relative to all the other people that the writer mentions. He is, he is, he gets the most press here, so to speak. We looked at how his belief in the promises and person of God shaped how he thought and lived. He made specific choices in specific situations because of what he believed about God. He obeyed God's command and left his homeland, left his family, left everything behind and moved to Canaan, the land of promise. And in fact, when he left, he didn't even know where he was going. Uh, God just told him to start going and would let him know when it was time to stop, basically. And as he lived in that land, because of what he believed, he lived as an exile. He lived as a stranger. He lived as a misfit, was the word I used. And we're told that we are essentially misfits in this world. And that's what Abraham experienced. He was waiting for a city that God would build. Not that was already built by humans, but one that God would build. And finally, when it seemed from a human perspective that all was lost in relation to God's promise of an heir for Abraham, he continued to believe in the promise and he saw the display of God's power to keep the promise. I used a phrase last week, when he couldn't and when Sarah couldn't, God brought about the conception and the birth of Isaac. Uh, something that I wanted to touch on and I didn't and could have been another whole time together is the idea of that waiting. And, you know, I've preached on waiting before and that's why more recently and that's why I didn't decide to do this as another sermon but from a human perspective for Sarah and Abraham when you consider what they experienced as human beings in the waiting 
if you just kind of put yourself in their shoes of, of Sarah being barren and not being ha- able to have a child and, and all of the, the decades that went by in that time frame and the sorrow that would have come from a human perspective, it seems like too much. But when Isaac was born, they saw a display of God and that was incredible. But the only way that they could have appreciated that display of God's power and the keeping of his promise, to appreciate it in the way that they did was to have had that waiting on God, to see now that, if, I mean, if, if they both would have been able to have babies, it was no big deal really in one sense. But to have to wait all that time brought to bear the power of God in the situation, that it was the only way it could have happened that he did it. We don't like that tension, but it, it's relevant in that story. I've, I've said many times, people want to see God do great things, and he does, but we don't appreciate the great, he's always doing great things, I guess is what I would say. We don't appreciate the greatness of what God is doing because he just does them without us having to wait. When the, when the trials set in with it and when the waiting sets in with it, then suddenly it's just magnified and displayed. In order, in order to be, we're going to talk about Joseph. This is all off sermon, so I'm not looking at the manuscript here. But we look at Joseph and how he was exalted to be the number two guy in the kingdom and the wonderful, number, wonderful things that happened in his life. He also had to be the guy who spent years in prison. And he was the guy who was persecuted by his brothers. If you, if you want to be that person and you want to see God do those things, which I hope you do, you have to understand that it's accompanied by difficult things. It's the way God works. Back to the sermon. After talking about Abraham, what he believed, and how that fleshed itself out in his life, now in verses 20 to 22, the writer shifts the focus from Abraham to three of his descendants, his son Isaac, his grandson Jacob, and his great-grandson Joseph. I don't know that we often think of these individuals in their familial relationships, but you've got a son, a grandson, and a great-grandson. And actually, in the story in Genesis, you also have great-great-grandsons that are involved in what's going on here. But what's interesting to me is that in contrast to Abraham, the writer does not choose to remind us of how these men lived. With, with all the characters before Abraham, up to and including Abraham, <clears throat> the writer is talking about events in their life, about how they lived, what they believed and how they lived. But what's different here in verses 20 to 22 with Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, he doesn't talk about how they lived. He talks about how they died. In a sense, each of these stories that he briefly mentions, focus on their death, their dying, and in a sense can be seen as the deathbed confessions of Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. It's kind of odd that after all these people, this is how they lived, now he's gonna come down to these three very important people in scripture, skip how they lived, Let's talk about how they died. He wants us to understand what faith looks like when you're dying. I was originally, originally called this sermon, Don't Stop Thinking About Tomorrow. And I thought, well, that's probably not the best one if you're a fan of music from the 70s. Some of us are old enough to remember that. But it really is their last will, their last words, not their last will, but their last words and testament as they approach death. I think it's significant what he has to say here because just like how we live can reveal what we believe, 
often how a person dies can also reveal what they believe. It's been my experience over the last 19, 19 and a half years, and it's been my privilege to be present when, or very close to when, a number of people have passed from this life. It's, um, this, is, this is probably gonna sound weird to you, but I actually enjoy being with people as they pass from this life. It's something that really brings me satisfaction to minister to them in those moments. Um, a lot of people think that's really strange, but uh, some of you have heard of a guy named John MacArthur. He's been a pastor for, man, like 45 years, going on 50 years. He years ago wrote something of 10 reasons why I'm a pastor, and I came across it in my first year of being a pastor, and I, I copied it and laminated it, and it's been sitting on my desk uh, on the right-hand side of my desk for 19, almost 19 and a half years. Uh, but one of the things that he says in that 10 reasons why I'm a pastor, he said it's, it's a great privilege to be able to usher people into the presence of God when they die. And I learned very quickly what that's like. Um, my first funeral was three weeks after I became a pastor. So I got initiated real quickly into that. But I've, uh, I've again, found satisfaction in being, pe- being with people during that time. Sometimes these individuals have expressed regret over past choices. And you shepherd them through those regrets. Uh, other times there are concerns for those who are going to be left behind. Uh, that's not an unusual one, especially for women. I remember uh, one person that uh, was a good friend of Terry's and I's and, um, and I, and uh, she was in the later stages of the death process. She, was, she had reached the point where she wasn't able to talk anymore. She was not opening her eyes anymore, um, but she was aware of everything. And every time I would go and talk to her, we actually spent the night th- through the night with them. And she passed at around two, no, actually it was probably more about nine o'clock in the morning she passed and I'd been there through the night. Um, but every time I would go to talk to her in those last moments of her life, she would get really agitated. She'd get really upset. And I would, I would go and just talk softly in her ear and, and you could see she was moving and she'd try to move her head and it was really bothering me and I thought she was mad at me. I was trying to figure out what I had done that she was upset with and uh, I was taking it personally. And then Terry came later that morning I went home, picked her up, brought her back over, and uh, and I was telling her about it, and she said, she she also saw it then, and she said, I don't think she's upset with you. I think that she's worried about her husband. His name is Brian. I think he's, that he's worried about Brian. I said, oh, okay. So I uh, uh, got there, and and uh, the whole family was gathered there and Brian was there and I uh, got down with Barb and just talked in her ear and I said, Barb, it's time to go. It's just time to go. You need to, you need to just rest and it's time to enter Jesus' presence. That's where you're going. You don't have to be worried about it. Just let that go. But I said, I want you to know that we're gonna take care of Brian. We love him, and you know that we're gonna take care of him. And she just, it was just peace. And that was what the problem was. She was worried about Brian. Uh, Within about 10 or 20 minutes, she passed. When she knew that we were gonna take care of him, she was good to go. Um, It's one of my best memories in life. It really is. It's It's just a neat thing to be there with them. Uh, some people in their dying moments are very honest about the dying process and they speak of their fears regarding the pain and the discomfort they're going to experience. It's, it's not uncommon for me when I'm with someone who's near death to ask them, are you afraid? And when you ask that question, they just look you in the eye and say yes. 
I'm, a, I'm afraid of the process. I'm afraid of what I'm going to experience. And that's a legitimate thing because um, none of us have been there. And it's, uh, uh, it's, a, it's a scary thing when you think about that process. But at the same time, those who have trusted in Jesus often talk about their future and how much they're looking forward to being with him. I have told many people at the end of their lives, I envy you. In a few hours, you're getting what I long for. I'm coming someday, but you're getting now what I want more than anything else. But you learn a lot about people and what they truly value in those moments. And for many people, I found the immediate prospect of death has a tendency to strip away much of what we thought was important in life. And it brings us to a place where our focus shifts to what is of most importance. Not always, and particularly for unbelievers, they never fully figure out what was most important. But for most believers, in those moments, life comes down to just some very simple things that really were the most important things of life. And that's what we find with Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. If we took the time to go back and read the stories of these three men, we would see a lot of evidence of the presence of sin and the effects of its curse in their lives. I've always found it interesting when people name their children Jacob. Uh, you're Isaac, and I get that. Isaac's, Isaac's a good story overall. It's, it's a good story. Um, Jacob is not a really great character in the Bible. For most of his life, he's got it all upside down. He's a thief. He's a cheat. Um, he's, he's sneaky. He's manipulative. Just constantly going on in his life, even into his older age. So it's, when, you, when I think about Jacob, I guess I'm saying that to say that I don't think really great things about Jacob. And even Joseph. Joseph was an arrogant little brat. He was spoiled rotten by his father and he was arrogant. And it comes across in how he talked to them about the dreams. And, and uh, even, even uh, uh, Jacob's response to uh, Joseph's dreams tell you that it wasn't being communicated in a real respectful way. They all experienced very dysfunctional families. If you go back and read the stories of Isaac and Jacob and Joseph, the families are a mess. You think you got a bad family? Read their stories. They were just a flat out mess. You read, you read about Jacob with Leah and Rachel and how those two are competing to have babies, thinking that Jacob's gonna like them better and how they manipulate each other and they manipulate Joseph and they manipulate the kids. Uh, how Rebecca and Isaac manipulated the kids. It's a mess. Two of these men suffered extreme injustice. And at one point or another, all of them stumbled in their walk with God. Most glaring, Isaac's lying about Rebekah for fear of his life. And Jacob, his lack of, God's, of trust in God's plan for his future. And Joseph, as I mentioned, had a real pride problem. But the writer of Hebrews doesn't bring any of this up. He doesn't mention any of it. As he talks about faith, he doesn't bring up any of their poor parts decisions. He doesn't bring up any of their good decisions in life. Instead, he wants us to understand something about them that they all had in common and that came out in their last moments of their lives. And that thing that they held in common was what they learned from Abraham. And that was a present belief in the promises of God that looked forward to God's future fulfillment of his promises. As each one of these men died, they died believing in the promises of God. And as each one of these men died, they passed on those promises in the form of blessing to their sons.
It's interesting to me in the story, and keep in mind that these, these three verses from 20 to 22 occupy over 200 years of history. From, from Isaac to Jacob to Joseph is a span of over 200 years. And he gives it three verses and very short things about each one. But I think it's, as we think of them, it's, it's important for us to note that only two of them actually experience God's direct communication of promises to them. The promises made to Abraham. With Isaac and with Jacob, God spoke to them directly and said to them, reiterated to them the promises about the land, about innumerable descendants, and about the blessing of the nations through their descendants. With Joseph, he never had that experience. He had two dreams that were, in a sense, he'd look at it and he'd say, they're kind of unrelated to the promise of the land and the promise of the descendants and the promise of the blessing to the nations. Although you see in his life that God used him as a blessing to the nation of Egypt. But in, but in spite of the fact that Joseph never had those experiences, he never had those direct promises given to him. It would appear that, his not, that he knew about God's promises, that they had been communicated to him, and he believed in those promises because of what he said at the end of his life. But however they learned of God's promises, as I said earlier, as they neared death, each of them communicated these promises to their offspring. Isaac reminded his sons, Jacob and Esau, of the promises of God and spoke future blessing over them based on those past promises. Isaac's blessing to Jacob spoke of future abundance and his rule over the nations. He finished the blessing with God's promise of protection to Abraham that cursed be everyone who curses you and blessed be everyone who blesses you. Isaac knew that those promises were not just for Abraham, but they, they went to all of his descendants, which is kind of an, it's important to us. Jacob spoke of a far more detailed future blessing upon his sons in Genesis, where we're told that he blessed each of them with the blessing suitable to him. He also spoke specific future blessings upon Joseph's sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. They were not part of the 12 original tribes. But God, through Jacob, brought Manasseh and Ephraim into God's promise, including them in the promise to Abraham. And finally, Joseph passed on the promises of God in a very different way. His final words were not actually to his descendants, but to his brothers. And he said to them, God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And in doing so, he not only passed on the promise that was given to those men, but he also prophesied the day when Abraham's descendants would return to the land. He told them, when God takes you back to the land, so he's prophesying of the the uh, of the freedom from the exodus from Egypt. He says, when God takes you back to the land, take my bones with you. Because that land was promised to me as well. And that's where I belong. So, so Joseph died fleshing out those promises, saying this is specifically how God is going to take you out of the land of Egypt and you take me with you. I'm going with you. When Jacob died, he said, don't bury me in Egypt. Bury me in the land of Abraham. And so there was a massive processional as Joseph took his father with, with other servants and with his brothers and their families back to the land to bury them with Abraham, bury him with Abraham and Sarah. They all believed in the promise of the land. They all believed that was their final destination. So even after death, they wanted to be there in belief of those promises. 
So how does that have anything to do with us? Are we all to be asking to be buried in the promised land? Uh, No. But how do the promises, do these promises really have much to do with us? And I would argue that these promises have everything to do with us. As I mentioned in a previous sermon, those of us who have trusted in Jesus' blood for forgiveness of sin and acceptance with God as our Father, we gather this morning not only as brothers and sisters united with Jesus, but we gather together this morning as the offspring of Abraham. Every single person in here this morning who has confessed Christ as their Savior gathers as a descendant of Abraham. Now, I don't know how many great, 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 greats that is, how far that goes back. And actually, I come from German line, which doesn't trace back to the Jews at all, except Noah. But it doesn't trace back to the Jews. It bypasses the Jews. So how is it that I am a descendant of Abraham? Well, I claim this to be true based on in part upon Paul's statements in Galatians 3 and 4. And there's other places too. But in Galatians 3, he says, if you are Christ's, if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Now that's not a nuanced thing where it's really kind of hard to interpret and understand. That's just flat out, straight fact as he states it. If you belong to Christ, you are the descendant of Abraham. You are an heir to the promises made to Abraham. He says again in chapter 4, now you brothers and sisters, like Isaac, are children of promise. Like Isaac, our children, a promise. I used to hear there was a song, uh, Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. It's a little kid's song. I am one of them and so are you, so let's just praise the Lord. And for a long time, the theology I had been taught was that that was speaking of the Jews. It was not a song for us to sing. It's speaking of Jewish people. And, you know, and sometimes we hold really interesting theology until we read our Bibles. And then it's just like, well, that one isn't true. But how more clear could Paul be? Brothers and sisters. He's writing to the churches in Galatia who are not primarily Jewish. He's not speaking to Jewish people. He's speaking to Gentiles and telling them, if you are united with Christ, if you are in Christ, then you're, you are Abraham's offspring, heirs to the promise. If the gospel is true, and I'll say because the gospel is true, we actually are both the fulfillment and the recipients of the promises spoken to and by Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. It's in Galatians where Paul makes it clear that the offspring of Abraham in the original promise is speaking of Jesus. He goes to great length to make the argument that offspring is singular in the Old Testament writings. And he takes that forward and says, this is Jesus is the fulfillment of that. So then how do we fit into that? How do we become part of that? How does the gospel make us actually fulfillment and recipients if Jesus is the promised offspring? Well, we say we're brothers and sisters with Jesus and... mm, so we use that phrase, united with Christ. You've heard that phrase? It's a New Testament phrase. We have been united with Jesus. 
and we are co-heirs, not because we are believers, just believers in Jesus, but we are co-heirs because we're united with Jesus. We have the righteousness of Christ because we are united with Jesus. God has adopted us and made us sons and daughters, which makes us co-heirs with Christ as well, but specifically, we become fulfillment of the promise of the seed when we're united with Jesus. And we become part of the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob when we are spiritually united with Jesus. If we believe that, if we believe that we are united with Jesus, if we believe that we are recipients in fulfillment of the promises, and if we believe that we are heirs of the promise, which is exactly what Paul said. Now you brothers and sisters like Isaac, like Isaac, like Isaac, are children of promise. That should be to us wonderful news and should shape the way we think and live. Let's just take that one. Cursed be him who curses you and blessed be him who blesses you. How would that shape how we live together as brothers and sisters in Christ if we believed that we are recipients of that promise? We, t- we often take that, if we, if we try to apply it to us, we take it as, well, God's going to curse all those unbelievers out there who treat us bad. And he's going to bless all the unbelievers who treat us well. But let's back that up just a little bit into this room here. And, and from, from a theological, biblical God's perspective, who are the people, what, what can you tell me about people who would curse God's people? What might we assume about people who would curse God's people but claim to be Christians? That there's some kind of a big problem in there because God's people would never curse one of God's people. And yet, do we not see in our churches, have we not seen for hundreds of years division in churches where people start calling other people names? They no longer can tolerate each other and they no longer have any use for each other. How can that be if we truly believe that God will curse the people who curse his people? I don't know if you've ever thought about it that way. The looks I'm getting right now are all of, huh, that, that look. But shouldn't the body of Christ be a place where people are blessing one another? Are speaking words of blessing to one another that are reminding each other of the promises, that are reminding each other of what we have in Christ and helping one, along, one another along towards becoming like Christ? I, I know of a situation right now, it's nowhere around here, of a guy who has torn into a church and tried to cause division in that church. And he actually said to the elders when he had a meeting with the elders, I'm not divisive, I'm factious. As if that's better and good. And I told the person who was telling me that, I said, you know what, I would have stopped him right there and said, Paul says there are factions among you because it reveals who's genuine and who's not. So that if he's saying I'm factious, it's revealing that he's not genuine. It's not better than being divisive. But if we're blessing one another, is there going to be division at times over doctrine? Yes. If you deny that Jesus is virgin born, if you deny that Jesus rose from the dead, if you deny basic doctrine, that's a heretic and a divisive person. And you're not supposed to have anything to do with them. But we're not dividing typically over that. 
We're dividing over disagreements about conclusions about things. We're dividing today. Uh, it saddens me that evangelical churches are dividing over politics. When did we ever decide that that was a biblical issue? I'm thankful that I haven't seen that here. I was starting to worry it was happening. And that prefaced a lot of what I preached on kingdom, being part of the kingdom from Hebrews 11. I found out that it really wasn't a problem. People were glad to hear what I had to say. But if we believe these promises of God, they're gonna change how we live and how we live with one another. So I thought about this as well. I thought, you know, often, so here we have these three men who are dying and that's all the writer of Hebrews gives us. But again, there's a backstory to each one of these guys. And if we go back and read Genesis, you can, you can learn of those backstories. And a lot of, again, bad things went on back in those stories. And the fact is that if, if you look at their lives and you're honest, you can find a lot of places where you would identify with them in your sin and in your failure. You can identify with them in their stories where we find evidence that they struggled with belief in the promises of God. They were flawed people who made wrong choices and we are flawed people who make wrong choices as well. But the fact that Isaac, Jacob and Joseph are included in, these, in this portion of Hebrews and, and were shown how God used them in spite of their choices. I think it's important for us to notice that God did not cast them aside because of their sin. If you knew a guy who lied about his wife being his wife, like Abraham and like Isaac, in order to allow his wife to be used by other men so that he could save his own skin. If you knew a guy like that, you would probably be inclined to cast him off. But God didn't cast Isaac off. If you knew a guy who was, was as manipulative and as much of a cheat as Jacob was, you would be inclined not to hang around him. God didn't ever cast Jacob off. He didn't cast them aside because of their sin. He chose them, all three of these men, not because of what they brought to the table, but because of what he intended to do through them. He chose them, he made promises to them, and he used them to accomplish his redemptive purposes in Christ. And I would say to you this morning, in the same way, he chose you. If you're his child, he chose you. He made you his child. He made promises to you because of Christ. And he is using you in the midst of all your imperfections for his purposes. And I want you to hear this. As we look at these three men at the end of their lives, I want you to hear this. God uses flawed people to accomplish his purposes. God uses flawed people to accomplish his purposes. The fact is, that's all he has to work with. Have you ever thought about that? There is no non-flawed human being. There is no perfect human being. Jesus, but there's nobody around today. All human beings are flawed and God chooses to work through flawed human beings. Sometimes we get this idea that maybe you don't, I do, 
But I get this idea that I'm not good enough for God to use me. We're not good enough for God to work through us. That's something that's reserved for the super godly people. We look at people that we consider to be more spiritually mature. And we assume that they're the people God works through. And he does. Because he works through human beings. But he's also accomplishing his good plans in the lives of those who aren't so mature, in the lives of those who don't have it all together. We need to understand that every child of God is imperfect, flawed, and that God uses us in spite of ourselves. That was a big thing I had to learn as a pastor. I went into it thinking, I got all these skills, I've got all these abilities, and I've got all these ideas, and I am ready to be the pastor. I am ready to do this. And God put me in a small church, a tiny church. And I learned very quickly that I wasn't all that I thought I was. And I learned very quickly that God was using me in spite of myself, not because of who I was, but in spite of myself. It isn't that we look at it and go, oh, I'm a sinner, I might as well sin, and God's going to use me anyway. We look at it as, I want to be like Jesus. And the reality is, there's too many times when I'm not. But I'm thankful that God, like he did with Isaac and Jacob and Joseph, never throws me away. He never gives up on me, and he continues to choose to work through me. A second thing that I think is important for us to understand is that our outcome is in life and what is valuable to, those, to us in those final moments of life is not determined by our circumstances or place in life. I am sick and tired of hearing people say, you don't know what I've been through. You don't know what I've been through. You can't expect me to change. You have no idea what I've experienced. You don't, you, I can't trust God because this happened to me. I, as I've said before, sometimes we just need to put on our big boy and big girl pants and get up and get going. Because all of us have been through junk. Some of us worse than others. What we do is we, we seek to excuse our choices because of pressures or difficulties that press in on us. Well, I responded that way because they did this. Well, I, I, I'm this way because this happened to me. You know what? I've had a lot of stuff happen to me, and there are times I don't like who I am today, but I can't excuse the negative or sinful tendencies, tendencies in me because of what happened to me. I've got to look at it and say, I've got the Holy Spirit in me and this is who God wants me to be and I've got to get up and move forward to who he wants me to be. We have a whole society today that are victims of somebody or something. Christians are not victims. Christians are united with Christ, the sons and daughters of the most powerful being that has ever existed or ever will exist. And yet, yeah, circumstances affect us. But we choose to move forward in God's power and God's grace to be the person he wants us to be. It's not being non-compassionate. We move forward in God's grace understanding how he has used the circumstances to shape us into the image of Jesus. I'm reminded of what Paul said in his letter to the Philippians. In chapter 3, he penned these words. They're very familiar words. One thing I do. This is the thing that drives me. This is the thing I'm about. One thing I do. Forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. What's he forgetting? He's forgetting all of the titles and all of the successes and all of the accolades of human beings. 
He's forgetting his own self-righteousness, his efforts towards being accepted by God. If you go back up in chapter three, you'll see the list that he has. He also lists in chapter three that he was a persecutor of the church. It's a nice way of saying that he was killing Christians. So that's all in his list. And he says, that's in the past, it stays in the past. I've learned from the past, it's there. I'm not a victim of my circumstances. I'm not a victim of how I was raised. Forgetting those things that are behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, he has a forward view. I today, I today press on towards the goal. And that goal is the upward calling of Christ Jesus. Paul's future view was all about not achieving life goals. His, that's what his past was. Paul's forward view was all about Jesus, being with Jesus, hearing from his father, well done, good and faithful servant. Eternity without sin, eternity without pain, eternity without any, any of the troubles of life. And with that forward view, he said, today I do this. I do one thing, I press forward, I press forward, I press forward. We've learned in our family, through the circumstances in particular of the last year, but of circumstances beyond that, to learn today, to live today. I don't know that I have tomorrow. I don't know what tomorrow holds if I do live. Today. Take care of today. And today is pressing forward for Christ. Believing the promises, living in those promises, trusting in those promises. And those words from Paul were not the words of a perfect man, but they were written by a man who had come to understand his own brokenness. This is the man who wrote about the reality that we are nothing more than clay jars through whom God displays his glory and power. He understood also how dependent he was upon the grace of God in his life. As he says in 2 Corinthians 12, how he had learned of the sufficiency of God's grace for strength and obedience day to day. And so then I don't find it surprising that Paul nearing the end of his life, very close to dying, wrote these words to Timothy, I am already being poured out like a drink offering. The time for my departure is near. I'm dying, Timothy, I feel it in my body. This is the end. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. So let's talk about the future. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. Same kind of words as Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. They were the last words of a flawed man who faithfully served God because he looked forward to the promises of God. Is that what consumes you? Is that what you live for? Is that what you're about? And if God's plans are never thwarted, which is what Job says, which I hope you believe, are they worth trusting in? The prayer is that God will help us as weak, seemingly insignificant people to pursue his grace. That we will believe his promises and live for what is truly valuable and that our words and actions will not just at our deathbed, but the rest of the time of our life communicate the promises of God to the future generations. Let's pray.
Father, you have given us many great and precious promises, as Peter says. All of the promises that were made in the Old Testament for your people accumulated and accumulated as you told them that one day there would be a fulfillment of these promises and what started as one promise specifically to Eve began to become two promises, three promises, four promises, until Peter can only say there's great and very precious promises. And like Isaac and Jacob and Joseph, Father, we long for the complete fulfillment of those promises. We long to see your kingdom in all of its power and all of its majesty. We just see a little bit of it today. We long for the day when sin will be no more. You have freed us from the power of sin, but not from the presence of sin. Father, we long for that promise to come to be and everything that comes with sin, all of the death and all of the pain, all of the tears, all of the loss, all of everything that goes with sin. We long for the day when those things won't exist because sin is eradicated. We long for the day when evildoers will find justice. And we long for the day where we live in a place where there are no evildoers. That that is beyond my capacity to even imagine that there will be no one who's doing anything against your will. Father, there are promises that we still wait for, but you have promised us now to always be with us. You have promised now to take care of us. You have promised now to make us more like your son. You have promised now to give us every good thing in Jesus. Father, help us to live today understanding what you have promised to us. May it radically transform us and mold us more into the image of Jesus. In your Son's name, amen.